I think these problems have shifted gears a little bit from a really acute pinch point, which is, oh my goodness, are we going to have enough gas to make it through the winter, to now the larger structural problems. So we're extremely bullish because the other thing that's happened, of course, is that the stocks have all sold off dramatically and gas prices have sold off dramatically. So, you know, if gas prices had stayed high and we're looking through all this, you might want to trim them a little bit and say to yourself, well, you know, more things have to happen over the next couple of years, but they've now sold off so dramatically that they're pricing in like two and three dollar gas in many cases. In some cases, you know, they're even cheap on three dollar gas strips. And so I think you're being amply, amply rewarded uh, for those trends that are going to come out. But we've removed the immediacy. That, that, that much is true. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged. The place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another edition of our Global Macro Series, where today, as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Jim Kazang, as well as a returning guest to the show, namely Adam Rosenzweig, whom we last spoke to a few months ago. Welcome back, Adam, and thank you for joining Jim and me today for what promises to be another entertaining and highly insightful conversation, as they always are when you join us on the Global Macro Series. How have you been? It's been a few months. Yes, things have been good. Thank you. Happy to be back. Happy to be talking with both of you. I enjoy our conversations very much as well. So everything has been good on my end. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Likewise. And Jim, how is uh, how's the Windy City on a on a Tuesday morning? Springtime is on its way. Couldn't be better. <laughs> Excellent. Good stuff. All right. Well, why don't we just jump into things? And uh, as mentioned, it's been a few uh, months since you were last on, Adam. So why don't we start out maybe with your current, uh, maybe big picture framework when it comes to natural resources. And then we see, um, you know, some of the changes maybe since last time we spoke. Uh, and then we'll just dive into um, to all these uh, wonderful topics we're going to talk about. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, look, you know, I think at this point you have a little bit of a flavor of how we like to think and we don't move all that quickly. You know, we tend to be long-term investors in our um, philosophy and, and unfortunately sometimes that probably makes for some repetitive podcasts and things like that. But I'll try to tell you all the things that have changed and that are new since, since we last spoke. So I'll tell you what hasn't changed. You know, investor interest remains extremely pessimistic and low on this space. Uh, I think that I can't tell you the number of hedge fund analysts and portfolio managers I talk to that are so relieved that the, you know, bull market and resources now appears to be over. Of course, I don't believe that for one minute, but everyone seems to be hugely relieved that they weren't, they didn't participate on the way up. And now that it's kind of moving down and sideways, they say, oh, phew, 
I was right all along. There's no value in any of these things. Of course, none of that is true. Uh, and, and unfortunately, the world that we've put ourselves in now is one in which we've starved the natural resource industry for capital for so, so, so long um, that, that prices have to move higher to incentivize that capital to come back in. And we're just not seeing any of that. So I hate to sound like a broken record. We are bumping along the bottom. Inventories remain low and depressed in things like copper and oil. We have had a massive reprieve in natural gas, but that's been a one-off issue. It's been really, really mild winter weather in Europe and to a certain extent in the U.S. as well. And so we can talk about all of those great details in a second, but those I think are one time in nature. The structural trends are absolutely with us. And you know, the thing that I think the market is really getting wrong, if you had to sum up how most people are thinking about it today, I think they're worried that higher interest rates are slowing the world into a recession, that we're going to have a major economic downdraft, and that that's going to result in lower commodity demand. And they're just they're looking in the wrong corner. This is a supply driven story right now. And so demand is going to do what demand is going to do. And it could be volatile and it could be choppy, but I think there's some really strong longer term tailwinds to demand, not headwinds. We can talk about those too, but this is going to be a supply story. You have taken 75% of the money in the spending out of the space. You've taken the weightings in the index down 80, 90% from their long-term averages. Uh, you are looking at relative valuation levels of commodities relative to financial assets that are the lowest we've seen in 100 years. These markets do not resolve themselves other than through higher prices and more spending. I wish there was another way to do it, but there's not. Maybe I don't wish there was another way to do it, actually. I don't know. It should be a good time for resource investors. Uh, this is a great uh, this is a great setup uh, Adam very much appreciate that and and actually it's completely in line with uh, what we heard from Rick Rule a few weeks ago when he said well you really have to be a contrarian to be able to make money in these markets so I think your sentiment uh, is well received now last time we spoke and um, this was the time when the US came out and effectively announced the quote unquote oil put by declaring their intentions to start refilling the SPI at around 67 or $72. You actually broke that news to us, um, at least uh, here. And, you know, that should theoretically put a nice flaw under the price of oil. In addition to this, uh, we've had OPEC announce, at least as far as I know, two rounds of not insignificant production cuts. And we have China that's kind of reopened. Um, yet, Oil seems to struggle every time it gets to eighty dollars. Um, so, how do we make sense of what's going on uh, in the oil market? So, you know, I think a few things that you touched on there that are so interesting. You know, you talk about the Fed put of refilling inventory, and uh, as far as I know, the Fed's not made any single, you know, SPR purchase, at least not any of major import, despite the fact that we've had on a few occasions prices that you know, based on their original indications, would have, um, you know, been in in, in the money for the put, if you will, uh, meaning meaning at levels low enough that the government said that they would be refilling it. So I don't know that that's ever going to happen. Um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, that would be a huge source of incremental demand on a market that's already very tight. If that happened, I don't think it's going to happen, and it's certainly not going to happen before the debt ceiling is uh, resolved, um, because you know I think there was some talk at the last round of SPR releases uh, that were sort of unexpected back last fall, um, that perhaps that was done to free up some cash money, uh, you know, because uh, of, of concerns that 
the federal government would be able to finance itself going into the debt ceiling debates and negotiations. So I don't know that that's ever going to come back. It's certainly not going to come back in the short term. Um, you know, the Saudi led OPEC cuts are really quite fascinating for a variety of reasons. And I'd like to talk about that for a second. There's been a lot of uh, press coverage on what some of those motivations for that cut could be. And, you know, the bears took a big victory lap, the oil bears, and they said, you know, this is proof that in fact demand is much weaker than the bulls would care to admit. Um, other people have said that this is just a real testament to how bad Saudi-U.S. relations have gotten, that, you know, the uh, OPEC groups were, were willing to make two un unannounced. And, and really, I mean, you can debate whether they were needed or not, but but it wasn't sort of an obvious cut at the time that either of them were made. The first was in the fourth quarter and the second was just sort of a month ago. You know, it, it wasn't a time like, let's say, back in 2020 when inventories were exploding to the upside and they and OPEC had to do something to get control of the oil markets. They were they were basically both real big surprises. So you know one of the motivations, like I said, uh, uh, could be that OPEC uh, was angry with the United States. Uh, another potential issue could be you know Russia's involvement uh, with OPEC plus and whether they're currying favor with the group there. Another. Possible explanation could be the fact that Saudi uh, fields themselves are actually starting to suffer some depletion problems. And so we've made the case that anytime you see an increase in production above 10.5 million barrels, it'll be followed by a uh, unexpected cut in production. Really difficult thesis to test, right? The counterfactual is tough. But but when you do see things like this, you, you, you think, well, perhaps we're right and in the right path there. Whatever the motivations are, and I'll put them aside for a second, whatever the motivations are, one thing is for sure, five years ago, OPEC would have been really hard-pressed to cut production because they were terrified that shale producers would take market share and increase production to make up the difference. They are no longer worried about that. And that's really important in global oil markets because, as we've talked about, I'm sure, in our last conversation, the U.S. shales and the Permian in particular have been basically 100% of non-OPEC oil supply growth over the last 15 years. And what Saudi and OPEC is telling you, whether they're trying to explicitly communicate it or whether it's just inferred through their actions, is that they no longer fear the shale's ability to grow. And that's something that we've been saying now for a couple years. Uh, I think it's true. The numbers bear it out when I look at productivity numbers and different drivers of productivity. And if that's true, that's the important takeaway from oil markets from the first quarter of 2023. Jim, staying on energy, do you want to dive into another part of the energy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, kind of pulling on this thread a bit, um, I think we, we very much agree on, on a lot of the secular forces um, uh, playing out here. Uh, in particular, you know, it's not a surprise. If you open a textbook or you, you Google what caused inflation in the 1970s, right? Uh, people point to three things, fiscal policy and the Great Society program, uh, Vietnam War and, and beginning of the Cold War, and, and then OPEC, like energy kind of pressures. All those three things are connected in the form of kind of deglobalization and populism uh, that, that kind of are happening. And we're starting to see those same things, those trends, which we've talked about these for years. Uh, we talked about a likely OPEC cut coming. I'm not an energy specialist per se, but geopolitically, it made sense. Uh, countries start flexing their muscles um, in, in, in times such as this. So it's interesting to see that. I'm curious to, to hear 
whether you think the, you know, they'll continue to flex their muscles going forward. If there are any signs uh, on your end that uh, that continues to put a, what we'd call a put on on the oil market, um, and and if so, where do you see that that put being put on the market? No, I think those are all really great questions. And you know, one of the things that my partner Lee likes to say, one of his sort of um, adages, is that the biggest competitor to OPEC oil is non-OPEC oil. And when non-OPEC oil supply slows, OPEC gains market share and pricing power. And it certainly happened in the 1970s, and it happened more recently, actually, in the run-up to 2007's oil price spike. You know, everyone thinks of the last bull market that took oil to $140 back in 2007 and 2008 as being demand-led, you know, because China entered the WTO in 2003 and what have you. But really, there was a supply element to it as well. And you saw a huge slowdown, huge slowdown in non-OPEC oil supply growth in the years from about 2005 to 2007. And OPEC started to flex its its, uh, its muscle. And there was actually a situation where inventories were declining, similar to, to now, inventories were declining in low and OPEC cut production. And they were doing it, you know, either based on faulty assumptions or, you know, to, to flex their strategic uh, influence, whatever the case may be, they cut into a tight market and that saw prices go up into the triple digits. And I mean, if, if that's not a repeat of what's happened recently, I'm not sure what is. You've seen massive OPEC cutbacks in the last 12, 18 months now in a time when inventories are extremely low, SPRs are extremely low, and prices you know, are relatively high. I mean, of course, we can talk now, you know, crude to WTI at 72 bucks as we speak today. But I mean, even that, by the way, you know, a couple years ago would have been sort of like a dream. So this is not a situation where we have, you know, low prices by any means. Uh, yes, low off of the highs from last year. So yeah, I think that you're seeing that already. Uh, I think you're seeing an in- increase um, in, in exertion of, of you know, soft power and influence and stuff like that. And I think that probably, you know, the one thing that OPEC really, really worries about is the perception that they're out of spare capacity. Because if you think about it, you know, a cartel draws its power from spare capacity. Now think about that for a second. It's a bit weird, but a cartel draws its power from spare capacity. If no one had any spare capacity, that's just a market. That's everyone producing and selling and being a price taker into a commodity market. So what creates a cartel is actually holding production back. And by doing that, you're able to manipulate the price and put a floor under prices and things like that. And so the one thing, and this is why the topic of Saudi spare capacity is so critically important, is that if Saudi is perceived to not have any spare capacity left, then all of a sudden they begin to lose their influence within OPEC and they begin to lose uh, their influence on the geopolitical stage. They're just a commodity producer. They're just, albeit a big one, but they end up being uh, a price taker. You know, you can look at some of the other um, OPEC countries that produce sizable amounts of oil, but they don't have any spare capacity. They don't really get much of a say at the table at all, right? And so, yes, Saudi's big, that's important, but it's the fact that they have the spare capacity. And so I think that you're starting to see, you know, I'm very, very, very sensitive to that. And whenever I see unexpected cuts, I worry about that uh, and, and the ability of Saudi to ramp production very much. That's a very interesting point. One thing I did want to highlight as it relates to energy before we go uh, in another direction as, as it fits completely into all the other uh, commodities. If you look at the 70s in particular um, as, as, a, as a proxy, um, we actually saw the volatility decrease in commodities during that period. It was a very bullish period, but it was a very uh, lower of all. The distribution of outcomes was very right-tailed, but very consistent um, because of that 
kind of Saudi OPEC put on markets and generally in, with industrial commodities, <clears throat> excuse me, that was also the case. Not the case with gold, um, for example, which was much more tied to interest rates, <clears throat> as you might ima- imagine, bond volatility, uh, you know, rates. Um, so I think that's an important distinction, something that hasn't been priced in the market. I know that's not, you know, your specialty per se, but I do think it's interesting to at least contemplate and talk about the potential kind of outcomes that can happen. And of all the commodities, I think energy and, and a few industrial commodities tend to, that are more centralized with, with centralized power, um, tend to uh, have a different distribution, which allows for different opportunities. I can't imagine that a commodity market without volatility. It seems uh, it seems like the tech market, I suppose. Well, maybe I can remind you of a market in the commodity space that that had showed a little bit of volatility last year, namely natural gas, um, especially the European natural gas. And I think at some point, I don't know. I think a lot of people thought, well, it's maybe we should start seeing some kind of convergence between the price of U.S. net gas and European net gas. After all, ah, they were who pretty would have far said apart. That? Nonsense. Yeah. That, that was no our idea. big thesis last year. <laughs> so, uh, where are we on this idea? Because obviously it's not just about price, it's also about infrastructure, export uh, facilities, etc., which is way outside my uh, knowledge zone. Um where is the situation with net gas now? Clearly, as you mentioned, we've had a mild winter in Europe, so we we uh, we we feel uh, like things are calming down. But that obviously may not be uh, the real story. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, it's it's funny. I'm, I'm joking that you know that was our big call for last year, and we made that early on. Actually, we made it I think late the year prior. Uh, and for the first kind of five six months of the year, my goodness, we seemed like absolute you know brilliant investors, top traders even one might say. And um, our, our thesis was based on the fact that you know in, in the United States, a molecule of energy was in the form of natural gas was trading at like a ninety percent discount to the price of energy either in oil terms or in other international natural gas terms. And and we said that's gonna that's got to close. And people said, well, that's that's. A shocking statement that means the gas could go up, you know, tenfold in the U.S. And why on earth would that happen? And I would stop and say, to people, like, well, why on earth isn't it happening? Like, how can you have one form of energy that's ninety percent cheaper than everything else in the world? It seems a little bit strange, and not like a small niche, you know, area. The United States natural gas—it's a big, big number. Uh, and of course, the reason is that if you're producing gas within the United States, let's say in the Marcellus or in the Haynesville, you can't reach out into that world market and get that world price. And the main reason uh, is LNG. I mean, that's the easiest way to think of. There's not enough LNG um, export terminals to be able to sell into that international market. You know, you can you can get the international price other ways too. For instance, you could um, build petrochemical plants here in the United States, which has been happening quite a bit. You can build fertilizer, ammonia fertilizer plants to use cheap U.S. gas as feedstock, and then export the fertilizers. That's been happening too. Back in the day, what you could have done uh, was was switch away from coal towards natural gas in the U.S., and that freed up the coal, which which you know, was eat, had more export capacity and export the coal. That's become a little bit more problematic because of environmental concerns these days. So the the issue was that, you know, we didn't have enough demand, I guess, to soak up all the domestic U.S. gas. And our view was that there was an asymmetry in the market. And that asymmetry was that if all of a sudden you did have enough demand, either through domestic sources or or more realistically through LNG exports, you would pin the U.S. price to international prices very quickly, you know, and in, and in theory, it would take one molecule 
of spare capacity on one export terminal, and you should all of a sudden arbitrage those prices away. Now, it's a little bit you know silly, but it does draw into sharp relief the fact that that price could move really, really quickly and really uh, substantially. And you know, we joked that or commented that oil prices wouldn't go from seventy to four hundred, but gas prices could go from three bucks to fifteen bucks, you know, almost overnight. And so you had this big asymmetry in the U.S. gas market. And for the first few months of the year. That kind of happened, and it kind of didn't. U.S. gas prices did reach almost, you know, went up to basically about ten bucks from from a low of a dollar ninety in the worst of the COVID crisis. And you know, we, we sort of were. People said, "Wow, that was a really great call." Now, international prices went up as well. So the discount international prices actually weirdly persisted. It was kind of like you know seventy five percent or whatever. Um, European gas prices went up to almost seventy five, and in Asia they went up to like a hundred. Um, and then all of a sudden, everything reversed, and both U.S. and domestic and international European and Asian prices have since collapsed. The big question is why, and where do we go from here? So in the U.S., something happened in the beginning of last year, and that really explains all of the excess supply or, or lack of demand, and that was the fire that took place at the Freeport LNG facility down in the Gulf Coast. So the U.S. lost two BCF a day for about 200 days, 400 BCF total. That's a lot of gas. And our inventory levels relative to seasonal average is built by about 400 BCF a day. So that, to my mind, is mostly, if not entirely, explained by losing the Freeport facility. Now, what's interesting and often not talked about is that we also had a mild winter in the U.S., and we didn't build inventories by even more. So demand is actually quite strong here in the U.S., uh, but it still wasn't enough to overcome the loss of the Freeport LNG terminal. And so we built inventories. So we went from quite low back to average to actually a little bit above average, and prices came off dramatically. Internationally, in Europe, notably, there just wasn't a winter. And I mean, the numbers are really quite shocking. It was like the warmest winter in 45 years. Um, if if your listeners were not in Europe this winter, it was really quite shocking. Your ski hills had no snow on them, even at high elevations. Um, and the demand impact for heating was substantial. And as a result of that, as well as several really notable policy decisions in the middle part of last year after Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, Europe actually is now awash in gas. So what did Europe do? They shut down industrial production where they could, they brought in as much coal as possible, which obviously, you know, is just completely anathema to all of the green policies of the last 20 years. They cut down all these trees uh, in Carolina and made wood pellets and shipped those to Europe. Uh, and they actually, the other thing, which is quite important for oil demand, they stockpiled a lot of oil, both in terms of diesel and heating oil, as well as other residual parts of the barrel that, that in a pinch could be substituted in some facilities for natural gas. So they did everything to try to get away from gas as best they could to make it through the winter. The winter never came. They had all this gas now as a result. So inventories in Europe are quite high. So as opposed to last year, Natural gas internationally and in the U.S. today does not have an acute problem. We're not sitting with low inventories getting worse. But what we do have is this dull, throbbing headache, which is the problems that are now going to be with us forever. Europe needs to replace 15 BCF a day of Russian gas. Not going to happen easily. The United States needs to contend with the idea that the Marcellus, it's biggest source of growth in the last 10 years, has not grown now for 18, 19, 20 months. 
People say, well, maybe it's a pipeline issue and an infrastructure issue. But what we're hearing and seeing in terms of pricing and things like that is that most of that basis is gone. And in fact, given the fact that a lot of companies are actually kind of down on production, you know, we don't think it's a pipeline issue. We think there's spare capacity in those pipes. And so I, I think it's really field depletion. Our models are telling us that more and more and more. And so those are now the issues to be faced going forward. The U.S. has another 2 BCF a day of new LNG capacity coming online this year. We have another 2 BCF a day coming on next year, three. Um, so we have pretty sizable new sources of demand. And we don't see a huge supply response to meet that. And so I think these problems have shifted gears a little bit from a really acute pinch point, which is, oh my goodness, are we going to have enough gas to make it through the winter, to now the larger structural problems. So we're extremely bullish because the other thing that's happened, of course, is that the stocks have all sold off dramatically and gas prices have sold off dramatically. So, you know, if gas prices had stayed high and we're looking through all this, you might want to trim them a little bit and say to yourself, well, you know, more things have to happen over the next couple of years, but they've now sold off so dramatically that they're pricing in like two and $3 gas in many cases. In some cases, you know, they're even cheap on $3 gas strips. And so I think you're being amply, amply rewarded uh, for those trends that are going to come out. But we've removed the immediacy. That, that, that much is true. Just one follow-up question, and then I'll send it back to Jim. And that is, in terms of moving gas around, right, in terms of actually Europe getting the gas they may need, has that situation improved? Um, so if we need more gas in the coming winter, um, and frankly, I don't even know if we use more gas in the winter or in the summer. I mean, a lot of people have air conditioning nowadays, so I have no idea. But has the infrastructure actually been built out to any in, to any large extent? So, so the answer to there, it's, it's nice to have really unequivocal answers sometimes. We use more gas in the winter. There's no two ways about that. Even if the summers are getting hotter and hotter, we use more gas in the winter by, by a long shot. Um, and, and the answer is, you know, if you wanted to try to replace 15 BCF a day of Russian pipeline imports with LNG, you'd be hard-pressed to do that. You, that would not be possible as of today. Now, you have a lot of gas in inventory, so you don't need 15 Bs, you know, to, to fully replace that. You can draw down your stocks over a couple years. And can you get there? There's a lot of new technologies that could make it more possible. Um, there's things that are called floating LNG, so they've actually taken the LNG import terminal and put it on a boat. So you float that boat up. Now, of course, that takes that boat away from wherever it is today. You need to use prices to incentivize that and bid that infrastructure away. Um, you know, never underestimate the ingenuity of the energy business. You know, everything will get there. But the question is what prices will incentivize that to happen and whether we're in a tight market or a loose market. And I think all signs for gas over the next five years point to a very, very tight market. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something that I think is really, really fascinating. And, it, and it's a little bit out there, so you got to bear with me. Um, but I think it, it, it's kind of neat. So there is one, actually two, but one major basin that's growing in the United States, it's gas supply, and that's the Permian. And most people think about the Permian as uh, oil field, but it actually produces quite a bit of gas as well. Now, there are some shales where you only produce oil. There's some shales where you only produce gas. There's some shales where you have a window that's oil, and then you move into a different area and it becomes gas. And then you have a field like the Permian where you produce oil and gas together. It's called a mixed medium reservoir. And the gas is actually dissolved into the oil. So the easiest analogy that I like to think of is a can of soda. 
that has you know gas, the carbon dioxide. There's obviously a little bit on top, but there's a lot of carbon dioxide in the liquid itself. And that gas will stay in the liquid so long as the pressure in the container remains high. If the pressure is relieved, if you open the can or open the bottle and put it to atmospheric pressure, all of a sudden that gas immediately liberates and comes out of the liquid and it bubbles out to the top. And eventually you're left with uh, flat soda. So the same is true in the Permian Basin. Uh, the, the pressure, the can, if you will, is the reservoir downhole under the ground, you know, 10 or 6,000 feet deep or whatever it is. Um, and the way it's been working to date is that the oil with the gas inside comes into the horizontal well, into the vertical well, still the pressure's high, and then it starts to come to the surface. And as it's coming to the surface, the pressure lowers and the gas and the oil separate. One goes in, you know, is processed differently and eventually sold. Now, there's always been a worry that when you deplete the Permian Basin, you will actually lower the pressures, not in the wellbore, but in the reservoir itself. And when you do that, the gas is going to come out of the solution in the reservoir. And it's going to create two things. First of all, it's going to create preferential gas flow. So gas is going to flow a lot more easily than oil. Before, the oil was carrying the gas up. Now the gas can just flow on its own. And secondly, it could potentially lead, in theory, if not in practice, we'll have to wait and see, to a degree of catastrophic well failure because that oil is then dead. You know, it's your flat soda, if you will, and it has difficulty being uh, driven uh, to the top of the wellbore and be produced. Fine. So what do we see now from the Permian? Well, what we're seeing in the Permian is for the first time in a long time, we're seeing really preferential gas growth out of the Permian. You know, the Permian gas, I think, is, is growing like 20% per year and oil's 10. Those numbers don't hold me to those numbers, but it, the gas growth rate year on year is twice the oil growth rate. We haven't seen that really um, in the life of the field. Now, what it's doing you know, so for your listeners who have just listened to my speech, if they believe it, will say, okay, well, maybe this is a sign that the Permian is beginning to degrade and actually deplete. And that's really, really bullish. Ironically, the market could take it as a bearish sign in gas markets because they're saying, oh, look, you know, for all these doomsday sayers that say gas supply can't grow, we're seeing really, really good growth. And so this could literally be like a swan song where you get this beautiful surge right before it kind of rolls over. Again, it's a little bit too early to tell, but wouldn't that be ironic if you know the last gasp of bearish sentiment in the gas market comes from perceived high supply growth from the Permian, which is really actually telling you, wait a second, guys, we have a major problem here. So you have to wait and see on that. You have to take a little bit more time, but that's something that our research has sort of told us more recently, and, and I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Any sense on timing uh, on any of that based on, uh, you know, the, the levels uh, that, that you guys see in these wells, uh, how that depletion kind of works through? I mean, are we talking years, uh, a decade? I, I, I would have said that the Permian was going to top out and plateau and roll over sometime in 20, late 2024. And I think that was our original timeline that we put out when we first studied depletion in the Permian back in 2019. Now, models are funny, right? You refine them and they get better and better. But I find more often than not, that first guess is there's a lot more value in that first guess than there is in the subsequent iterations or whatever, because you were sort of you know naive when you first made it and, and, and it represents, there's no 
biases there and stuff like that. So my gut feel would be to say late 2024. Then at one point I had actually said to myself, well, maybe that's pushed out a little bit because during COVID we really slowed down drilling activity. So all things being equal, if you could go with a rig count of X and peak out in 2024, now if you've taken that down, realistically that should be pushed out. However, we are starting to see some signs that it's beginning to happen already. And so perhaps it actually, we were too conservative and it might be, you know, a late 2023, early 2024 story. And there's a big Wall Street Journal article, sort of an in-depth, you know, expose, if you will, written recently about well quality in the Permian and the fact that your biggest wells there are degrading by 10, 15% year on year. Those are really important little data points to watch. Those are all the early signs. You know, that's like when your, you know, aging, aging parent falls and breaks a hip and you say, oh man, I'm going to watch that a little closer now. I don't like the way that's going. So I think you got to pay very close attention to all of that. And I think that those depletion issues are now uh, potentially um, with us. Speaking of timing, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here to like the long game, uh, nuclear in particular, right? This is like the slowest moving energy component, right? Um, obviously, we we know the trends that are politically changing um, as it relates to that, uh, particularly in Europe, but also here in the U.S. Um, and in Japan, as things come back online. Would love to hear your thoughts. In particular, would love to hear more about some of the uh, the actual tech, some of the small nuclear reactors, what you're seeing. Uh, I know there's some exciting developments there. Would love to really kind of drill down and understand kind of what what's out there and, and what's changing the game. Yeah, absolutely. Ha- happy to. So, you know, I think when, when we think about energy sources, and we've been super critical about um, renewables, about wind and solar, Uh, And it's not because I don't appreciate the externality of carbon. I just don't think that wind and solar are your solutions. And what I do think, and and I think we might have talked about this, and if not, happy to for as long as you'd like, but, you know, human history has been uh, one where we've harnessed ever more efficient sources of energy. And I actually am very much of the opinion that economic activity is basically harnessing energy and transforming it. Whether you build things, whether you go and do things, whether you eat things, uh, whatever the case may be. And and lots of people say, oh, well, over time, economic growth gets less energy intensive. I'm actually not so sure that that's, that that's the case, and, and that's a topic maybe for another day. But I think that all of economic activity in some way, shape, or form is effectively turning energy from one mat, one form into another. And and. Just like there's sort of the law of the conservation of energy, where energy is neither created nor destroyed, it's just transformed. I think that's basically the history of us uh, here as well. And when you look, just as an aside, when you look at some of these regressions between economic activity and energy, you know, these are things that that are not found in economics. They're like 0.96 regressions. You know, this is as close to a physical truth as I think you can get in the dismal science, is that the economy and energy are dramatically linked. And so it's become super difficult to say at the whole economic level, can you degrade your efficiency of this transmission mechanism of energy, turning things into other things, take that efficiency level down 60, 70, 80% and still have a viable economy? I don't don't think that you can. And, And so what we need to find is we need to find a solution that is both more efficient than what we're replacing and emits no CO2. And nuclear power fits that bill. And so I think that we have to be pursuing that, you know, aggressively on all fronts. I think it has a very, very important future. And 
for those that are into finance, like the efficient frontier, you know, usually in my experience, you're always trading off efficiency for carbon. That seems to be kind of the, the trend that I've noticed. Uh, and nuclear is like off the efficient frontier. It, it's just it's just off the charts. You know, it is three times as efficient as oil and gas compared to renewables, which are one sixth as efficient as oil and gas. And there's no CO2 at source. So this is what we need to be going after. Now there's a problem. And, and part of that problem is self-imposed, but it's a problem nevertheless. Current third-generation nuclear reactors are expensive. They're large. They create waste, which we could deal with. And there was actually a, an op-ed in the New York Times, of all places, that admits finally that, yeah, nuclear waste is really not such an issue. And I'll talk about why that is the case. Um, and then perceived safety. And now I say perceived safety because if you actually look, nuclear reactors are extremely safe, and there's been basically three incidences over the last sixty years of operating nuclear reactors uh, in the whole world. Um, you know, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, and Chernobyl. Uh, of those three, Chernobyl was the only real material um, event, and that was because Chernobyl was basically operated as a weapons fa facility to create plutonium more than it was. It, it did generate electricity, but that was kind of like a byproduct. Um, and, and it was this clandestine weapons manufacturing facility. So other than that, you've had two issues. N neither of them have led to any uh, fatalities. You know, I remember very vividly when Fukushima happened and they sent, you know, there's 11 or 12 guys into the reactor to turn off all those uh, valves and, you know, it's basically going to like save humanity and save the world. And, and it was sort of implied that it was like the suicide mission that they were all going to do for the sake of humanity. And the first one of those gentlemen just passed away this past year, which, you know, sad, but in an actuarial group of 12 guys in their 40s, 50, you know, 12 years later, you know, I think it's about a 50-50 likelihood that somebody dies um, within a group of 12. So you're, you're within, there's no, you know, you're within the kind of bounds of normal. Um, but they're really, really expensive. And one of the reasons that they're so expensive has to do with the levels of safety that we require from them. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I think that's appropriate. The other is uh, because of the process itself. So what? how does a third-generation nuclear reactor work? A third-generation nuclear reactor, which is our big, you know, one, 1.2 gigawatt facilities, uh, it, it's the one that was just built down in South Carolina had massive cost blowouts and you know basically resulted in the bankruptcies of the sponsors of that project. Uh, and it's sort of the reason that, that many countries around the world have kind of slowed or stopped their new build reactor programs. The way that they operate is they have a core of nuclear fuel. That fuel undergoes uh, fission. It splits apart. And in doing that, it releases energy. That energy heats the water in which that fuel uh, package is sitting, that water then boils and is taken off as steam to turn a rotor and a, and a turbine and generate electricity. Okay. So the nuclear core generates heat, I think at about 500 degrees C and water obviously boils at 100 degrees C. So you have a problem. You know, if you just leave the water there, it'll immediately evaporate off and the core will then not be cooled. It'll continue to rise in temperature and it'll eventually melt down and you have a core meltdown, right? Like in The Simpsons or whatever you remember from TV. And the solution to that is to pump a lot of high pressure water over that reactor core at all times. So you have to keep the water under pressure to keep it from boiling and you have to then pump water 
to, 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 to draw off the heat from that reactor to keep it from melting down. So what you need is you need very fault-tolerant systems, obviously. You need active pumping, obviously. And you need massive pressures. And so you need really, really thick steel and cement and valves and weld joints. And these have been the areas that have actually seen the cost overruns. The welding has not been done properly, and so you have to kind of start over, pull everything out, and start anew. Uh, and the reason it hasn't been done properly is this combination of high specification and high pressure. And if you, uh, you know, if you remember back in Fukushima when the roof of of, of the nuclear, uh, the cooling tower actually blew off in this explosion, it wasn't like a, a typical explosion like you'd be used to. It wasn't, you know, uh, something igniting. It was steam. It was a steam explosion. Now the net result is the same but you know just just to put that all into perspective it was a steam explosion because the steam from that uh, cooling system um, bre breached basically so that's all well and good fine it's costly it's high high specification and really really thick and a lot of material and a lot of uh, cement to support a lot of that material and, and on and on and on it goes what do the new reactors offer well basically the new fourth generation or small modular reactors come in a whole variety of different flavors um, and some of them are basically just shrunken down ap1000 so instead of a gigawatt or 1.2 gigawatts you're like 300 megawatts so you know a fourth the size and their claim to fame is that they can be built in a factory instead of on site. And if you build a you know, billion of them in a factory, one after the other after another, you're going to get better and better and costs are going to come down. I, I'm sure that that's true. I don't know that costs really are going to come down enough um, to, to really you know, differentiate that technology. But you know, certainly as, as you get muscle memory, you should get a little bit of savings there. And, and they'll be the first, you know, these are companies uh, like New Scale. They'll be the first to tell you that their secret sauce and their benefit is that they're not reinventing the wheel and they're not doing anything new. So like what I'm saying is not controversial. Their strategy is they think that the future of nuclear is to eke out efficiency gains where they can. And, and they think that they can do that by making it smaller and mass producible. But their technology is effectively the same. And if you look, the amount of material per unit of electricity is exactly the same. So whether it's steel per, t uh, per megawatt hour, whether it is cement per megawatt installed, um, what have you. And so I think that ultimately the costs are going to be in the same order of magnitude as the current third generation with some efficiency gains thrown in. But there's some other companies that are doing fundamentally different things. And there's a few different ones, but I think that one of the ones that is the most uh, attractive is uh, TerraPower, based out of Washington. This is the company that is backed by uh, Bill Gates and that has um, done a uh, joint venture with Pacific Corp, which is, of course, a Warren Buffett-owned, Berkshire-owned um, utility. They are on track to have their first demonstration plant by the end of this decade. I think they say 2027, but that might have been pushed a little bit with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Um, and what they're doing is fundamentally different. Instead of using water to cool the uh, nuclear core, they're actually using salt. And you take just, it's not regular salt, but it's basically regular salt. And you heat it up to about 300 degrees C. And at 300 degrees C, the salt actually melts. And what you're left with is a, is a clear liquid. It looks just like water. I don't know what I was expecting to see when I went to go tour their facility a year ago, but it looks just like water. It's very, very hot though, and it doesn't boil at 100. So it actually gets up to 300 uh, before it melts. And it, then it, I think, eventually boils at like seven or 800 degrees C. And so when you run that over the core, 
that can take off all of the heat without ever risk of boiling. So it does a couple things. First of all, it's what they call walk away safe, meaning that if you lost all electricity, you know, you would just have the nuclear core sitting in a bath of this molten salt. And that salt could take off all of the heat of the reactor without ever, you know, risking to melt down the containment vessel. The second thing, of course, is that since you're not dealing with uh, steam, you have no pressure. And so now all of a sudden, all of your steel, cement, all these different things just drop, including the size of the plant, the size of the facility. And, and so you look at that and you say, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. And, you know, I'm not a technical person, but I do know enough. And, and, and one of the things that I was really interested in is all these pundits on, on in the news and, and what have you talk about how these small modular reactors are going to bring down the cost by like 70 to 80%. I said, 70, 80%, that's a huge number. Somebody tell me in a simple sentence why it can possibly come down a near order of magnitude. And, and you know, basically the, the one sentence thing on some of these small modular reactors that use molten salt is that your bill of materials falls by like 75 to 90%. And so if you have 75 to 90% less stuff and nothing is more expensive, then yeah, I could see how that could really make a big difference. And so I think that, that they hold a lot of promise. Now you might ask, you know, why haven't we adopted this technology already? Is this really kind of cutting edge or whatever? And What's really strange there is that you have to go all the way back to the 1960s and even maybe the 1950s when the uh, nuclear electricity and nuclear power program was really getting started. It's a product of the Navy, and it was really led by Admiral Rickover of the U.S. Navy, and you know he was given all kinds of different proposals and things like that, and he settled on the high-pressure water reactors that we have today, and the nuclear industry really is very, very, very slow to change because it has such high safety standards. It's you know really not the type of industry that lends itself well to new reactor designs. When something has been codified, people like to stick with that, including the utilities, right? Even if the regulators said fine, you know, the utilities prefer to stay with what they know uh, because of the safety concerns and stuff like that. And so we we've actually as a country have have operated molten salt reactors for many, many years in a laboratory setting, big but not commercially, uh, in order to study them and see how they operate. And they operate exactly as you know you would expect, or, or as these companies are saying, that they're very, very, very safe, and they're largely quite you know straightforward. Uh, there, there's some peculiarities, obviously, to everything, but, but they're quite straightforward. So why did the Navy go with the high-pressure reactors? Well, because if there's one downside to really hot salt is that it tends to react with water. And so Admiral Rickover felt, you know, the catch is on fire. And so... Admiral Rickover felt that, you know, a hot salt, molten salt reactor in a submarine was probably not a great idea. And he would be willing to take on the additional cost and the poorer economics and the better weld joints that would be needed to have something that if they sprung a leak in the submarine didn't, um, you know, kill everyone on board. And um, and so that's that's how we have the high pressure water reactor today. But if, but if you know, you're not a thousand feet underwater in a submarine, there's really no reason you shouldn't go with molten salt. Fascinating story. Jim, where do you want to go? Or do we do should we go to some metals maybe? Or? Yeah, I was actually thinking precious metals. Uh that was fascinating, by the way. Thank you, Adam. That I always learn a ton when I, when we have you on the on the pod. It's an interesting time for gold, right? Uh you're not just broadly supply, demand, uh, you know, demand from central banks, et cetera. But really in terms of price, right? We've had this really big rally. We're up against kind of a triple top 
from the last three years, 2020, 2022, and then now you can kind of draw a line. And uh, we're definitely at this point of potential breakout from that. There's a lot of people watching it very closely. I'd love to hear your thoughts on gold, uh, not just the supply dynamics, but also what you're seeing in terms of uh, price action, uh, where you see it going, why uh, in the next kind of couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're we're big believers that gold has a huge rally out in front of it. We're not gold bugs. And so, you know, we don't think that gold is sort of the solution to everyone's problem at all times. Um, you know, I don't think we'd go back to the good old days if we could just kind of get it on a hard money standard. Uh, I think it's an asset. It's a very strange asset class in a lot of ways. It doesn't generate any cash flows. You know, interest rates are, aren't really a thing. But it's an asset class like any others, and I think you can try to value it at least on a relative basis vis-a-vis uh, -vis some of the other asset classes out there. And that's how we try to do it. And so we like to look at the value of gold relative to the value of financial assets. And that's a really simple way, but it's been extremely, extremely predictive over the last you know, 120 years. And if, if you look at that you know, measure, and I, and I should point out, this is not all you know, in retrospect. My colleague Lee wrote a big article in Forbes supposed to be on energy, but it ended up being on gold because they asked him what he thought of gold at the very, very end. And gold was 275 an ounce. It was the summer of 2000. And he said, well, I think gold could go to 2,500 bucks. And that was the title of the, uh, of the article, which at the time I think, you know, raised a few eyebrows and, and probably, you know, upset a few PR departments. But um, in retrospect, it was great to be in print saying that because in fact you know gold was the best performing asset class of the next two decades in fact and uh, it is today at two thousand and seven dollars uh, an ounce so if you do that same math today you know that takes you well over ten thousand and could go as high as fifteen thousand dollars an ounce depending on how you want to treat some of the excess reserves on the fed's balance sheets and things of that nature so so the numbers are really really staggering so we think there's a big bull market out in front of you we've never had a massive commodity bull cycle led by you know capital starvation like we've seen this time that hasn't had a gold component to it the, the trick has really always been to try to figure out when in that cycle you want to be involved because you know there's periods of time like gold pulled back hugely in 73 74 before rallying into the end of the decade there's worse times in the 70s you wanted to be in energy times you wanted to be in gold if, if you just wanted to buy everything that that would do it too but uh, by being a little bit nimble and a little bit tactical, you could actually generate a lot of excess returns. And so the question that we've been facing is when to get involved. We got mostly out of the gold market in 2020 because energy relative to precious metals was just too cheap to ignore. And then we've been waiting back in. We got back in you know, through last year, basically, you know, got in a little bit at the beginning of the year and then a little bit at the right at the very bottom. And then we've been adding uh, as we move in to 2023. And so like you said, we're making this big triple top uh, the price action here is going to be extremely important going forward. And what are the big drivers that we see? Well, I think the really big, big, big difference that we've seen in the last year, 18 months, has been the arrival of the central bank buyer. And I don't think you can really uh, overstate how important that is. You know, they came in the fourth quarter and they bought their largest quarterly purchase in a long, I think, ever, or in 40 years. They followed that up with very, very strong buying now into the first quarter. And it seems to be pretty widespread, right? So I think that a lot of consensus was that, you know, Russia was buying gold, China was certainly buying gold, China was, you know, 
seeing what the U.S. did in weaponizing the dollar against Russia and saying to themselves, well, wait a second, if we want to insulate ourselves no matter what, whether we invade Taiwan or not going forward, we need to get out of some of our dollar holdings and get into gold, which is, you know, outside of the um, f- financial system. Uh, and, and so I think this is all happening. Um, and I think it's really, really, really important because central bankers, you know, gold isn't consumed like oil and it's not really even installed like copper or steel. It just changes hands and it goes back and forth from one account to another. And so you need to look at the price elasticity of the buyer and the price elasticity of the seller. And I think the price elasticity of a central bank buyer wanting to diversify away from dollars in case the U.S. weaponizes is pretty inelastic. And and so if they become the marginal buyers here in the next part of the cycle, I think that that could really be quite bullish on price. And I think that that's why, frankly, when you look at some of our ratios that would have really called like a cycle bottom – for gold, and you didn't quite get them last year. And I think part of the reason for that is you had a, a buy order in from the central banks. Whereas when you did get those, the last cycle was in the late 1999, uh, late 1990s, and you had central banks you know, selling quite a bit of gold, that last gasp of selling. So you didn't quite get the same levels of cheapness relative to certain metrics that you did in 99. But I think we're starting a new bull market here, and I think it's going to take gold up you know, eventually. Um, to $10,000 an ounce. It's interesting in past periods uh, to contrast this with the industrial uh, like commodities, whether it's energy like uh, or, or metals, um, which now, I, you know, again, similar to the seventies had that, that uh, structural, you know, resource put, put on it by some other kind of central entity. What you see in the, in, in periods of inflation, at least during the seventies as, as a proxy is that there's less control now that there's no Fed put, inflation puts the Fed in a bit of a box um, and that Fed put becomes weaker. So things that uh, are tied to that, as I mentioned, like uh, bonds, uh, you know, the dollar, uh, gold tend to have significantly more volatility during periods like that. But it does still remain, tend to be very bullish, just at a different kind of distribution. So, um, you know, we actually called for, again, six to nine months ago, the Fed, the the actual, uh, you know, oil energy put, you know, being the way to play energy, um, but the call, you know, buying the call essentially in gold being the way to play gold. It's kind of a different way to play the distribution, and that's very much what we've seen. We've started to see oil, uh, you know, oil vol go down, uh, just kind of, uh, you know, from a vol perspective. While we've started to see precious metal commodity, uh, you know, those types of commodity vol go up. Um, so kind of just an interesting kind of look in and, and what I think listeners can maybe uh, a way listeners can maybe play uh, different commodities in different ways, but still be bullish in both. Yeah, very, very interesting. You know, I, I think that um, I, I think that in, in general, when you look at these, you know, fairly big capital cycles in the past and you look at, you know, we talk about a, a sort of a simple capital cycle like money being pulled out of the resources space and not enough money going in the ground. But what you actually see is there's sort of a a two-front approach. So typically money gets pulled out of the resource sector because commodity prices have collapsed, because spending had been high before. Interest rates get low, money gets pulled out, and it gets attracted into what's you know a high-growth area of the day. And, And that's true as far back as the 1920s when RCA was considered super high tech and radio and all this type of stuff. And and there's so many people, great people that have written about this. I'm blanking on who said this, but they said, you know, in these periods like 
the abstract takes over over the concrete and real. And you know, these idea business models are more valuable than businesses um, and things of that nature. And future cash flows are more important than than current cash flows. And and that happens over and over and over again. And you get this huge pull and extremes from one to the other. And and the monetary system is usually a part of that, right? It's helping to facilitate that through credit creation and through low interest rates and through, you know, recycling proceeds more, you know, and just sort of higher dollar volumes and things of that nature. And that happens and it happens and it happens and it happens until it doesn't. You get this kind of crack and, and you and it helps to relieve, you know, some of this pressure. And then you start to see the cycle very, very, very sharply swing back the other way. And it helps to normalize some of these excesses uh, and, and what have you. And, and that was definitely true, you know, from 29 to 44 when, you know, during that horrible period of the depression and the rise of war in Europe, commodity stocks actually did well. I mean, who would have thought, you know, commodity stocks did well in the worst economic period in human history. Um, but they did. You know, a basket of 25% oil, 25% base, 25% gold, 25% ag doubled at the same time as the S&P was down 50%. That was volatile, but but if you're if you said what worked, I mean that definitely was what worked and that's what that's what kept you. So maybe you didn't do it on leverage, right? You just kind of bought it with in your cash account. But you were sitting pretty, you know, 10 12 years on uh in 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 nominal terms, you know, not just relative terms, but in actual dollar terms. But one of the things that we've seen, and it was true in 2969-99, has been a, a, a shift in the global monetary order of things. And in 29, what you saw was the end of the classic gold standard basically in place since the beginning of the 19th century. In 69-68 was the abolition of the U.S. dollar gold uh, backing. People think it was 71. 71 is when we ran out of gold and had to close the gold window. But in 68, Johnson passed a law that said that the dollar didn't have to be backed by gold anymore. So that, in my mind, that was when the US dollar went off gold. Um, and then in 99, you had the Asian currency crisis and all the Asian currencies decided to uh, manage their currencies and keep them at a low level relative to the dollar in order to keep uh, activity really gr growing strongly. So, um, I wouldn't be surprised if this cycle bottom and this new bull market and resources has a monetary system component to it as well. And the reason I bring that up, of course, is that for the last 10 years or so, there's been people walking around saying, we're going to de-dollarize the world. We're not going to trade in dollars anymore. And it's always been really interesting, but it never really agreed or aligned with what we saw on the ground in terms of the actual fact patterns. We weren't seeing this actually take place. Uh, whereas now, you know, it sounds really conspiratorial, and I don't even know what to make of it. But you're starting to see, you know, LNG get uh, agreed for sale in China, settled in Renminbi. You're starting to see soybeans and iron sold from Brazil in Renminbi. You're starting to see crude oil being sold by Saudi uh, to China in Renminbi. Now, to the extent you need to balance that trade. You know, obviously they'll all buy Chinese goods, but to the extent it's still imbalanced, you'll need to convert the renminbi into gold through the Shanghai Gold Exchange. And um, you know, is that what we're starting to see the beginning parts of? If that's true, I mean, that's what takes gold from radical undervalued levels to radical overvalued again. You know, it, that's something that would seem so unfathomable five or ten years ago. And now I'm not quite ready to say it's happening, but you know, you kind of say, "Oh my goodness, what what what's going on?" The reality is, what drives these cycles? If you look at 
not just hundreds, but thousands of years of history is a move of capital, which uh, when you're stimulating with capital, it goes to the top, right? And that can go on and on and on for a long time. And it creates growth and globalization and building the pie across uh, things. But the problem is it leads to, it tends to lead to uh, inequality. And so eventually populism uh, comes in. Uh, people say that enough is enough and choose to have something that's more equal, not necessarily growing the most and building the pie. That's where we are. And I think that's, uh, you know, in the cycle, it's what we saw in the 70s as well. And as you mentioned, in the 30s as well. Um, and all of those things ultimately lead to uh, more expensive money, right? Uh, and less, and populism is by definition local. So uh, deglobalization is, is another knock-on effect that we see. Uh, you start to see deglobalization, you see more conflict. You see OPEC stepping in, trying to flex its muscles. You see, uh, you see uh, countries moving in, trying to de-dollarize and, 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 and kind of uh, rest control um, as well. So I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it does feel like we're entering another one of those global cycles. Um, and, uh, and once they start, it doesn't end quickly. Um, and it is why we've seen more volatility to precious metals and, and kind of rates, currency specific things versus uh, kind of less volatility for some of the more industrial solid um, kind of uh, materials out there. Before we start slowly to uh, wrap up, um, uh, Adam, I wanted to also wanted to touch on on some of the other metals uh, that are coming more uh, into focus. It, kind of a little bit of a similar story. There's been a lot of talk about copper since the world, the Western world, have now decided to essentially replace the energy dependency that we have had from Saudi Arabia for many years. Now we should have it from Chile the Democratic Republic of Congo, China, Peru, Russia. They have all the metals we need for this green transition. Um, yet still, things like copper, where lots of experts have been out saying, well, we don't even have the amount of copper. We can't get it out of the ground. But the price is not skyrocketing either. Um, sort of what, what, are you, what are you seeing uh, from your perspective on, on, the, on the metals uh, side uh, at this stage? Well, we're seeing a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we're seeing from a supply and demand perspective, things are really, really tight and bullish, particularly in copper. And so, you know, for all the talk of like this big recession that's impending and it's, you know, copper's doctor, you know, Dr. Copper with a PhD in economics and things like that. Um, you know, demand has been really, really strong. Chinese copper demand year on year is up like 30%. There's a reopening story there. But India, China, uh, India copper demand is up, you know, strong double digits as well. So you're seeing big, big, big numbers here. And I think that's going to continue. It's going to continue because of the underlying economic forces in those countries. And it's also going to happen because of the increased move towards uh, renewables for better or worse, you know, in my opinion, for worse, but very copper laden. So, is supply keeping up? You know, absolutely not. You're seeing massive, massive mining issues, both man-made as well as uh, geological throughout the world. And so inventories are, you know, now at the lowest levels on a days of cover basis that we've really seen them. So prices, you know, copper prices are four bucks, or I guess they they fell a little bit. They're three three not three eighty six as as we talk right now. Um, you know, they're certainly not. You know, they they peaked out between 450 and five bucks last year. 
but they're still high in, in historical standards. And, and for all the talk of a recession, you know, to have a forehandle on the copper price with these huge fears of macroeconomic recession, I would actually say that copper has sort of bucked the trend from a price perspective um, based on where the pundits say it ought to be. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. You know, all of these markets are extremely volatile in the short term. They'll have a lot of paper trading, a lot of liquidations and things like that. But the underlying fundamentals remain very, very, very strong in copper. And so I think you're going to have, you know, the question is, where does copper go um, in terms of how high can it go? Because it's very difficult to substitute copper in a lot of the uses. You know, we don't make roofs from copper anymore. We don't really use copper for piping in homes anymore. And so what do you substitute? You know, you can't substitute anything in electricity distribution. Um, I've been told that there's some air conditioning uses that you could try to substitute copper out for aluminum, but that's been, you know, ongoing and with sort of mixed results, it's definitely not happening right away. So, you know, where do you bring on, you need to incentivize recycling and scrap, and then you need to incentivize new mines, but they take, you know, five to 10 years to bring online. Um, so I think it's a very, very tight market. Yeah. You know, prices are down a little bit, but, but I wouldn't be too worried about that. To me, that's within the bound of normal. Speaking on the metal side, and I actually really don't know if this is related or not. I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Maybe you're not aware of this. Um, but about a year ago, we had Peter Zion on um, the podcast. Very, very popular guest. And and he makes some, um, some big calls in terms of what's going to happen with this deglobalization. And, and also things like... Um, he's been out talking about how Airbus might run out of some uh, metals uh, for their p- plane production. And that, that's all well and fine. I've not really heard anything yet suggesting that they are running out of metals. But be that as it may, something else popped on my radar the other day, actually. And that is that some airlines are starting to ground their air, their airplanes because they have a lack of engines. And I was wondering whether you might know whether that actually is because of raw materials more so than than labor, the fact that they can't supply the engines and therefore we are seeing an effect. Uh, so I'm just curious. Yeah, very interesting. No, I don't know uh, that offhand. I had heard uh, from an airline perspective, I had heard of a major pilot shortage, uh, particularly in China. Uh, And the reason for that, of course, was that when the rest of the world was sort of under lockdown, we still flew our planes, albeit empty, and then reimbursed the airlines from government bailouts. But China basically grounded everything. And so a lot of those pilots actually kind of timed out and lapsed. And the same is true of some of the mechanics, anyone that needs certifications. So that's what I had heard about sort of peculiarities in the airline industry. But as far as running out of the raw materials to make the engines, I had not heard that. I do like Peter. No, as I said, Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, as I said, I don't know if it's the raw materials they're lacking, but I was just hearing that airlines like Air New Zealand and and some other airlines were starting to ground planes because they simply don't have enough engines because I guess they need some extra engines if something goes wrong, whatever it might be. But anyways, um, that was just my own little story here. Jim, a final round of, of questions to you before we, we have to leave, Adam. And Yeah, honestly, the last, the last question I have here is, again, if we continue to have uh, this broad kind of geopolitical conflict, this push-pull, right, uh, building from kind of this populism and deglobalization, if that is a theme that continues, that helps kind of also drive uh, this, this commodity cycle, I'd be curious to hear what other commodities are centralized obviously there's the rare earths uh, mm. in china are there other commodities other than 
of the obvious oil kind of with OPEC piece that you think are, are very uh, centralized and, and may have kind of external pressures, you know, put, put on them, let's say, um, and, and anywhere you're particularly bullish from that regard? So I think you know rare earths are particularly concentrated in China, and that's not that's not entirely true. Rare earth production is, and rare earth separation is. Um, you know, there, there's big rare earth deposits in other parts of the world, uh, some in the United States, some in Australia. Uh, separating rare earths is quite tricky, and it's really hard to do it in environmentally friendly way. So China gets around that by doing it in a very environmentally unfriendly way, uh, kind of behind the scenes. Um, but but yeah, as far as being able to get access to end. Rare, rare earths, you know, China does have a, a very, very outsized role there. Obviously, uh, Russia controls a lot of the uranium beneficiation uh, as well. And so if you look at, um, you know, the ability for uh, nuclear power plants to upgrade, basically you take you you take U three hundred eight, which is what comes out of the ground from a mine. You turn that into UF six, which is a gas. You upgrade the gas in a centrifuge to create enriched uranium, and that then gets assembled into fuel rods to put in your nuclear power plant. So there's a lot in the middle, and it's really not a overly exciting, you know, or or, or sexy part of the industry, except when it is when when you have a bottleneck there. And so I think you know that's really possible. And and Russia does have quite a bit um, of a lock on that uh, middle part of the market. So you see already the U.S. trying to move towards, you know, security of supply there. Obviously, you know, copper production in countries like Chile um, is quite concentrated. It's not as concentrated as the rare separations in China, but, but you do have some very, very big producers there. The PGMs as well with platinum in South Africa and palladium in Russia. Nickel in Russia is predominantly, particularly battery-grade nickel. Now, nickel is a tricky one because Indonesia has been putting a ton of money into its nickel laterites. And so nickel as, as a metal is actually in surplus, but the high-quality grade of nickel used for batteries that doesn't require environmentally deleterious processing to get it there, that's mostly found in, in Russia at this point. And uranium, I mean, uranium... Upstream, the actual uranium rock comes from basically two countries today. It comes from Canada and it comes from Kazakhstan. And obviously one of those two countries is quite friendly. And one of those two countries is 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 not in the fight, but but awfully close to some people that are not not too friendly with the US right now. So I think that's given a lot of uh policymakers some reason for concern as well. Awesome. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I'd be curious to know. I feel like because when places are things are concentrated like this, it's hard to also find investments in them, right? Because it is so concentrated. I feel like um, there's only one or two players, um, and sometimes uh, it's hard to find. Even though the thesis is strong, it's hard to find the actual way to express it. Um, that definitely have, can guess, be the a, case sometimes. Yep. And and we try what we try to do is we try to look for for names that will respond well. And so ideally you want a good quality asset, but if that's in a jurisdiction that you don't want to go into, you have to decide, okay, well, do I take that risk and make it a smaller position or do I look for the best remaining asset outside of that country that'll benefit? What we don't like to do is we don't like to for the most part invest in things that, you know, would never work on their own but for, you know, so like a really lousy rare earth project, but maybe it'll get sanctioned if the U.S. really freaks out and, and insists that everything in the U.S. gets a IRA-led go-ahead. You know, may, maybe that works, maybe it doesn't, but that's not the way that we like to operate for the most part. 
on that note, given that it's Top Traders Unplugged, are there any names in the rare earths or a similar space that you can leave us with? Oh, you know, we actually haven't built any positions in the rare earth. We, we used to be really involved in the rare earth like a decade ago, and we played it really, really well on that way up, you know, when it went up, I don't know, tenfold and so, a lot of the names. And then they all collapsed, and we rode them over a little bit, and some we sold before. Like, but in general, that trade worked out well, and, and we've just been, you know, sitting on the sidelines and watching. And part of the reason is, you know, it's so funny. You go back a decade ago, and everyone said prices went up tenfold. Everyone said – so many bears abound at the time. And everyone said to themselves, look, rare earths aren't rare. They're just rare in high-grade economic deposits, which I've never really understood because that's true of every commodity. You know, There's gold in seawater. It's just not economic to get out. None of these things are rare. They're just rare in pods that are mineable. But that was the big, big, big knock on the rare earth space. We didn't see that. In fact, we saw that there's this big bifurcation between high-quality deposits and a lot of really low-quality deposits. So we bought the high-quality ones. That didn't stop the price from falling 90%. And all the bears said, oh, look, I told you so. And we said, well, look, you got it entirely wrong. None of those projects that you worried about, not a single one came online. And so we've been scratching our head for the better part of, you know, seven, eight years saying like, look, you know, we dodged a bullet there. But like until we understand exactly what drove that market, and it was very manipulated. You know, China and Chinese traders were manipulating that market extensively, both on the way up and the way down. You know, it's better to know what you know and know what you don't know. Now, having said that, could you own a name like Linus? You know, one of the higher quality, uh, you know, cash flow producing assets outside of China. Well, you probably could. They actually send their material to China to process it. So I don't know how insulated they are, but there's not a lot of good high quality names that are actually producing right now and, uh, outside of China. Maybe I could finish off with more a philosophical question, but actually a little bit on the same topic. So the three of us has talked a lot about today that there are opportunities in um, these markets and maybe some really big ones. However, a lot of it could be linked to some kind of uh, unfortunate development in the world, deglobalization leading to more conflict, et cetera, et cetera. And, and of course, we've also talked about some of the similarities um, that we've seen before, namely war and, 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 and stuff like that. So, of course, what you don't want as an investor is to get the thesis right that you should own gold, you should own some of these other metals. But then suddenly something happens that the way you own it is just simply not the right way, meaning you own it in terms of paper gold um, and then exchanges get shot or closed or uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, some of this stuff you can't own physically at home. I, I'm fully uh, aware of that. But are there generally certain things, Adam, that you would suggest people consider at least uh, if they want to get exposure so they don't make mistakes that could be avoided, let's call it that? Well, that's a really big question. It's a really interesting question. You know, when it comes to owning gold, if you want to just focus in on that, there's obviously an ease to owning gold in your accounts, whether through the GLD or what have you, versus a degree of security owning gold in in bullion. And so I know a lot of gold investors that do a little bit of both. And, you know, they're able to sort of split the difference between a certain degree of safety and a certain degree of, of ease. You know, look, I, I think that you're, you're definitely out on the left hand tail risk when you're saying, well, will my GLD be able to withstand the total collapse of the financial system, right? There, there's, there's a, there's a, that's a very, very 
specific set of circumstances, but you know, not a non-zero probability. And if you're going to the trouble of trying to hedge yourself from some of these real strong tail risks, why not go the extra step and own some physical? And so I would say that most of the gold investors that I know, particularly on the gold side, will own a little bit of physical gold as well as some of them probably don't own any paper gold and some of them own a little bit of, of paper gold as well. And, and they kind of split that. When it comes to the you know other energy side of things and it comes to the material side of things, it's really not clear how you would get exposure other than owning, you know, the equities. You can own the futures contracts, but I think that that's a really poor way to get long-term exposure because of the roll yield and things like that. So you could own, you know, the equities. And how do you protect yourself? Um, because oil equities are equities as much as they are proxies to oil. And we do see that they're less correlated to the market, but they're not zero correlated to the market. And, and in fact, in past drawdowns in, in 1929 to 40, as I mentioned, uh, and in the 1970s, you saw periods where you had financial panics. Or look, in 2008, you saw periods where you had financial panics. And 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 even though the fundamentals were, were strong, um, didn't stop the, the stocks from, from going down. So I think what you have to do, if you're really worried about you know, financial contagion and, and potential major risks to the financial system is, is pay particular mind to asset quality and balance sheet quality, right? Make sure you don't have these kind of levered call options. Make sure you have good underlying businesses that'll go down if you're wrong, but they won't necessarily get wiped out. And, and then probably a de degree and dose of humility to realize that, um, you know, that you are in the markets uh, and you are uh, subject to some of the tail risks on, on on some things like that. And so I think you have to pay a little more attention to where you buy these assets. I think you have to pay a little more attention to their balance sheets if you're worried about financial contagion. And then you have to um, you know realize that you are taking risks and hopefully you're being compensated for the risks that you're taking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Adam, of course, this has been another delightful conversation um, and it's been great to get an update on some of these incredibly important issues. So thank you very much for doing this today. Uh, and by the way, of course, um, to all of you listening, you make sure you go and follow and subscribe to Adam's work. You can, of course, find the links in the show notes for this episode. And as you can tell from today's conversation, we are truly living in a global macro and energy-driven world. And it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.